Hello and welcome to the Game Audio Hour. It is episode 223 of this fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio, from creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets. Here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. My name is Alex May and I'm joined here by the, uh, last time it was just you and I, Mike, I, I rolled off very eloquently a bunch of adjectives and none are coming into my mind right now. So I'm just going to say the wonderful Michael Gordon Shapiro. How are you, Mike? You could have just said the indescribable and that would have accurately reflected your frame of mind. Uh, I am doing great. How about yourself? Uh, I'm okay. It is Friday evening here in uh, springtime Sweden, and the days are getting longer very, very quickly. It's kind of, I was actually commenting to my children the other day that it's really strange in Sweden that the the days when they get longer and shorter in um, uh, spring and autumn respectively, it happens extremely quickly. Like literally over the span of, you know, three or four weeks, all of a sudden the sun's going down at like, you know, 11 o'clock at night and and before you know it it's kind of not going down uh which is the uh the strange phenomenon that is living this far north in on the uh on this planet but yes it's uh still i'm looking out my window here at a nice twilight evening so uh yes i'm doing pretty pretty well let's talk game audio shall we uh first Let's begin with uh, just covering a few news items that's related to our field of game audio. Um, there's a few things that have gone down this week. Uh, the main one, I think, which a lot of people's attention has been turned to is the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk for a, talk about indescribable, that's an indescribable <laughs> amount of money. I, it's so large, I can't even, I can't even, even something billion, that's as far as I know. Fifteen um, billion or something like that. It's it's something one of like these that. numbers that just like the order of magnitude is so much higher than anything I need to count in daily life. Like I, the numbers I deal with in daily life are like this is the second cup of caffeine I've had this morning, right? Like the 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 single digit integers get you through a lot of the day. So to contemplate 50 billion, or maybe it's 500 billion, or maybe it's 5 billion, I don't know. It's just beyond my brain's ability to digest emotionally. Yes, agreed. I uh, I, I think the largest numbers that I deal with is probably BPM, which means, <laughs> which means we go up to about 178 or something for some drum and bass, and that's about where it ends. So uh, anyway, uh, let's hope for the best for Twitter, uh, because obviously um, uh, Twitter is a fairly important and central tool for our game audio community, specifically the hashtag game audio uh, or hashtag socks of game audio, I think <laughs> I think it is that it occasionally becomes. Right. Um, is there any other uh, uh, news items uh, related to game audio that, uh, that uh, you're aware of that's happened this week? I think there's one or two other ones, Mike. Yeah, well, let's see. There is the ongoing accumulation of brands under the umbrella of Soundwide. Uh, I think we first heard this as an amalgam of Isotope and Native Instruments. And the most recent addition to the fold is Plugin Alliance, our, our beloved um, plugin publisher that seems uh, determined <laughs> to see how how far down can we press expectations for prices <laughs> on plugins. Um, <laughs> if you look at the official Soundwide roster, they also list Brainworks, but that's just the same person with a different job title. And Soundstacks, which I think, is that a technology that um, 8DO was developing, or am I thinking of something else? Right, Soundstacks. No, I don't know that one. Um... Yeah, I'm not sure. You know, well, and, of course, who's next on the chopping block? It's got to be Behringer. Huh. Why do you or say actually, so? actually, other way around. Maybe Behringer is going to, going to acquire Soundwide and then it'll be all over. <laughs> it's an interesting question is, uh, well, first of all, commemorating this um, new addition to the union, there was a, a big giveaway and uh, there were some um, fairly some beloved plugins uh, of mine included from the Plugin Alliance side of the giveaway. And Native Instruments, slightly skimpier, gave a uh, one of their specialized synth plugins, I think. Um, 
And Isotope, I think, is offering the low-end version of a couple of their plugins. So the, the typical freebie or heavily discounted uh, whet your appetite for our catalog of products kind of offerings are all together being offered for free for, I think, a short period of time. The, have, have you um, checked out any of the ones in the Plugin Alliance bundle? Because uh, well, I got that as well. Yeah, I, I already owned most of them. I think I got the Shadow Hills compressor, took one look at it and said, I have too many compressors. I don't. This looks like a challenge. I don't need more complexity in my dynamic reduction life. So that's on the back shelf for um, explore some other time. How about yourself? Yeah, actually, um, uh, <laughs> rather shamefully, I also own almost all of the ones in that bundle, ex except for the Shadow Hills Mastering Compressor. So I did grab that bundle just to get that. And um, I also found myself thinking, uh, just what I don't need, another vintage emulation of a compressor. Uh, so the first thing I did was test uh, aforementioned <laughs> vintage emulation of a compressor. Uh, and yeah, it's quite good. Um, it has, for those who don't know it, it actually is a sort of a dual compression circuit that has an opto side, uh, an optical compressor side, and a, I don't know, what is it, a, a VCA compressor or something like yeah. that on the other side, and um, allows you to mix both of them together, which is nice. Uh, stacking compressors is something that uh, I enjoy doing, as you would imagine. Uh, those regular listeners of the show will know that I have a... Uh, rather rather um uh unabashed fetish for compressors <laughs> uh and speaking of which um another thing that uh is still happening i think is uh, is a sale going on at the um uh, SSL store uh for their essentials bundle and that i think we mentioned uh last episode or the episode before that right uh, and yeah that contains the uh, SSL native channel strip version 2 and the SSL native bus compressor version 2 also, I think. Yes, uh, that sounds accurate. Yeah. And um, uh, naturally, seeing as I have no need at all for additional compression circuits uh, or channel strip plugins, the first thing I did was uh, purchase said bundle. Uh, <laughs> actually, to be serious... Uh, I probably wouldn't have purchased it if it wasn't for some very, very um, high recommendations from yourself and Vince. Yes. So, uh, yeah, um, I've, as you know, I've had good success with uh, SSL's XEQ2, uh, which is their sort of um, uh, Pro Q3 killer. Uh, and so I thought, yeah, let's um, let's go for it because. You know, you you can just like you can never have enough pair of pairs of pants, you can never have enough compressors, right? Or, right or equalization plugins. Yes, I I I don't actually agree, but my heart does. <laughs> actually, the um the channel strip. Uh, the first thing I did was 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 put it through Plugin Doctor to see what's actually going on under the hood. Um, and uh, it's a channel strip. Uh, it's um in practice. In in usage, it's very good, like very good. Uh, I have no idea what an actual SSL channel strip sounds like because I've never used a real one. Um, but I do have uh, the Brainworks uh, Plugin Alliance BX Console um, G and right. E, and uh, those are the ones that this is emulating. And uh, side to side, when you when you compare them directly with each other, it's actually surprisingly a clear win for the native SSL uh, compressor. Uh, sorry, uh, channel strip. Right. I, I agree in that I, I have, I think, the, the Plugin Alliance SSL emulations, and I just casually played with the, um, the native SSL plugin, and I kind of liked the latter better. But interestingly, when I compared them in Plugin Doctor, they seemed to have the same exact EQ curve. Like, I looked really carefully, and I couldn't tell the difference. So clearly, maybe there's something going on with added harmonics or some other mojo that you need advanced diagnostics to even be able to perceive. But for whatever reason, psychosomatic or real, uh, I do like the SSL version better. I think from the standpoint of usability, it also wins just because uh, the interface, in addition to being pretty, 
is clearly laid out. You can just glance at it and kind of know what's going on. Your eyes are are immediately drawn to the right thing. And I think when you've got a channel strip that does not have a spectrograph or some sort of visual feedback as to what is happening to your waveform, it's nice to just be able to visually navigate the thing uh, with ease. And I think um, SSL does a better job than the uh, more fully featured but densely cluttered um, plug-in alliance versions. Yeah, that's ex- exactly right. And also SSL kind of has the upper hand in this case because they are the original creators of the thing that these things are emulating. And that means that um, there's n- there's less obligation for them to make their channel strip look like the real thing. In the case of Plugin Alliance and Brainworks, to a certain extent, the design has to sacrifice user- usability for an appearance that looks like an SSL uh, channel strip. Um, whereas for SSL, they don't need to do that because they are SSL. <laughs> so, so they can right. just focus on, you know, laying things out as clearly as possible. Um, and I, I totally agree that it's just, I don't know, it feels funny to speak of, um, you know, a, a, a virtual graphical interface this way, but somehow the SSL designs are just sort of more grabbable. You know, you just go for <laughs> it where, where, if you know what I mean, whereas the, the Brainworks um, channel strips are a bit more, you know, squint at the screen. Hold on, what? Where's? Okay, there it is. Now I got it. You know, um, right? There, there are nice little details. Like if you mouse over a knob, you see the value of the knob. Whereas I think on the Plugin Alliance equivalent, you actually have to click the knob in order to see what its setting is uh, with that's precision. Exactly right. And yeah. that little difference—it seems like a fiddly, little lazy difference—but it actually is significant because you can just sweep your mouse or your pointer over the interface and get all the numbers. Whereas the effort is just a, is a little more friction and resistance with the Plugin Alliance interface. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's definitely more effort at SSL put into their user experience design because the uh, the work that they did with the XEQ2 is excellent. You know, it really is excellent in terms of how easy and quick it is to use. Um, and like I think I've mentioned before, whilst I do use uh, a lot of the Fab Filter tools, and I completely, you know, acknowledge and respect the opinions of the majority of people out there who absolutely swear by and love Fab Filter's user interface design, I'm personally not a huge fan. I find that some of the decisions that they've made, especially with Pro Q3, are uh, yeah, just for the I don't know personally, I I just don't find don't find them especially uh, intuitive or easy to use when you when you go to like Saturn or Volcano or uh, any of those other tools that allow you to modulate the things that you're adding. That in itself also is kind of you know some of like like the for example setting up custom LFO curves for a modulation source in say Volcano. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I personally can think of other ways that that interface and that user experience design could have been done better. And when I saw XEQ2, um, the immediate thing I thought is, wow, now that's actually designed by... Oh, no, no, I shouldn't say that. That's, of course, they're both designed by people who are very conscious of user interface design. Uh, but with SSL's design, it's just very, very clever. And it's like, hey, wow, I see. That's like, that's really good. You you've taken into consideration that the mouse pointer is going to be here. So therefore, let's put all of the things that I need around where the mouse pointer is going to be so that I don't need to jump up and down between, you know, the node up the top on the graph and then down the bottom, all my fine, my big knobs and controls down the bottom. Right. In the case of FabFilter, um, in the case of the the XEQ2, everything that you need is just within the vicinity of where your mouse pointer is always going to be when you're using it, which I think is totally obvious. And that's what good interface design is when it feels totally totally obvious like that. So, uh, but I mean, regardless of interface design, I also agree that the sound of these two tools, um, the bus compressor is really good. Uh, Really, I mean, it is a quite a legendary. The SSL bus comp is quite a legendary uh, compressor, and there are many, many um, emulations and uh, you know equivalents out there. Uh, but yeah, that I don't know. It, they they just have a, a a strong character, and for me personally, that's what I want 
in tools, I want them to have a strong identity so that when I'm going to my sadly bloated list of plugins, you know, I can immediately think, oh, I want that. Okay, I know right. where to go to get that. Yeah, the, the, the clothes analogy is actually not bad. You know, you can almost think of compressors as, as genes. You know, they're functional, they're utilitarian. Um, but there is such a thing as nice genes versus ratty Walmart discount bin genes. And then there's workman's genes, which are perfectly functional, but maybe you're not going to bring them to social occasion. This analogy is getting very stretched. Ah! Unintentional pun, but nice um, I agree. It's nice to have an arsenal, but again, uh, for beginners, do not feel pressured to get tons of stuff. You know, get a basic thing that works. Get your basic Swiss Army knife style compressor. Learn the compressor that comes with your DAW, um, or get something that's very flexible, maybe like the Fab Filter compressor. But you do you don't have to feel obligated to lunge for everything we talk about. Um, you know, these are very specialized. Uh, tastes, and um, I, I don't want anyone to feel pressured. That said, um, forty dollars is a good bargain. So um, it's this is something I think now three out of three game audio our regular panelists have and endorse. Um, so be smarter than I did. I got it at full price. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's totally correct. Um, uh, what you mentioned just there about um, uh, not really. You know, not we don't want to give the impression that okay, in order to produce the best work, you need third-party, expensive third-party tools. Um, that's absolutely not the case. I think probably in most cases, except for you know special effect kind of effects, in most cases when it comes to compression or equalization, you can more or less achieve almost you know, well, not all the same sounds that you'll get out of these specialized tools, but so close that it just doesn't matter, you know, with, with like a native compressor from your DAW or the, the native EQ built into your DAW, which then begs the questions, why even bother buying third-party tools at all if you can achieve the same results with, you know, the built-in tools in your, in your DAW? And I guess the answer to that is workflow, specific sound, um, uh, I guess, tools that basically can get you a result faster. Um, when I say a result, I mean like a, a rather specialized result. You know, for example, um, here's a good example. Like the, the SSL uh, EQs, they have uh, some technology built in that means that bell-shaped EQ boosts, they don't cramp as you go up towards Nyquist, meaning that um, an analog EQ, for example, if you have a bell-shaped EQ curve, as you move it up the frequency range, the shape of the bell remains consistent as it approaches the uh, Nyquist frequency of, of 22, uh, 22K. And so with digital EQs, and usually the ones that are built into DAWs are included in this category, they tend to cramp. So the closest, the closer that you get up to uh, 22K, the bell shape begins to distort and get kind of squashed up there because uh, digital EQs are typically unable to have um, positive EQ values beyond the Nyquist frequency. So they, they'll sort of cramp up there. And you can see that when you're looking at, um, uh, you know, an analysis tools like Plugin Doctor, for example, from DDMF. Um, it'll show you that the, the EQ, as, as you go up, it sort of begins to squash. So the result of that is, theoretically, the result of that is that if you have a bell curve, say at like, you know, let, let's say uh, 8,000, no, 8K, 9K. If you have a bell curve there, it will mean if it's a very wide bell curve and it's not cramping up the top, the, the idea is that... Um, Further up the spectrum, there'll be an enhanced sense of, you know, air because a lot of the uh, very, very extremely high frequencies that we cannot hear are also being boosted equally with that nice natural bell curve shapes like an analog EQ does. Um, that's the theory. Now, can you actually hear that? Maybe, maybe you can hear, okay, this one sounds a bit more airy and a bit more shiny than, than the 
the stock EQ in the DAW, would a player be able to hear that in the context of playing a video game uh, with music playing as well and sound effects rapid firing off all over the place in, in the 3D spectrum? No. No, they would not be able to hear that. <laughs> so, so, well, you know, it's, it's highly unlikely that a player would ever ever sort of pick up Oh, gee, the, the top end of this game sounds rather muffled. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so, right. yeah, uh, the, these use cases for these specialized third-party tools are quite specific. And, you know, let's, let's not beat around the bush. Uh, I think there's probably a certain amount of just fun, you know, and, and retail therapy, <laughs> I suppose, <laughs> associated with collecting third-party tools. Wouldn't you agree? I, I think that is part of it. We should strive to not let that be part of it, but if something's on sale for dirt cheap and it's got a pretty interface, sure, why not? There are worse things you can do for casual entertainment with your money. And um, One thing I wanted to add to what you said earlier, which I thought was a really good observation, you know, why get something outside of your DAW's basic tool set? Um, to elaborate on one point you made, which is the workflow point, um, and and maybe actually both points, you know, workflow and some specialized sounds that you're not getting from your DAW or you're not getting easily from your DAW. Sometimes third-party plugins are desirable because they have more flexibility and more capabilities and offer you more options. Sometimes they're desirable because they're simpler and have fewer options and make some decisions for you. Mm. Um, in the case of the SSL bus compressor and arguably the channel strip plugin as well, what I like about them is that they're simplified. There are actually fairly few knobs to turn. You just dial in the opinions of who designed the hardware back when there wasn't as much flexibility, and you commit yourself. You know, you're, I don't think you can change the queue for the um, um, the maybe you can you can right, but it's not super specific. It's it's just kind of a small versus big, and who knows what that means. You're not looking at your right. waveform. Uh, with uh, the bus compressor, there's very few knobs, just the ones you you basically need. And sometimes it's nice just to have a tool where the decisions you don't feel like making, you have confidence are being made well that they're burnt into the system. Um, so there's there's an argument for both of those. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um... A really good example of that actually is one of the very, very first EQ plugins that I ever bought way back uh, when I first started uh, doing game audio. Um, and that was by the, um, now where are they from? I think they're from South America, possibly. Anyway, that doesn't matter. They're called Sonimus. And Sonimus do a very, very affordable EQ plugin called Sweetone. Sweet tone as one word so sweet tone and uh, sweet tone is a tilt eq and uh, basically what that does is you you know it has a center frequency and you basically turn the knob this way and it boosts the highs and cuts the lows you turn the knob the other way and it boosts the lows and it cuts the highs so it's a very very quick and easy way to make something sound brighter or to make something sound darker and the sweet tone plugin has a bunch of other really, really useful functions. You know, it has some filters. So it has like a high cut filter and a low cut filter. And it, it has a way to switch the tilt EQ into more like a, a, um, a smiley curve EQ. So you can turn the knob one way to simultaneously boost the low and the high, or turn it the other way to simultaneously cut the low and the high to make give sort of more of a, a mid, mid bump. Mm -hmm. um, and this is exactly the example of what you just said, where Nothing that it does is um, unreproducible in a standard DAW uh, EQ, but the fact that it's just slap it on there, turn it that way. Okay, now it's brighter. Get on with things. You know, I just it I, it just I really like that. And you know, as a as a quick way to get a sound, so you can keep the pace and the momentum going, um, it just makes a lot of sense. And that's a really good example of where you know. These kinds of specialized third-party plugins excel at specific workflow enhancements that just get things done faster, just as you, uh, as you mentioned there. Um, I wanted to actually uh, discuss uh, competitions and contests because um, as a nice segue from talking about tools, um, one contest uh, that I uh, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend and endorse 
and uh, many, many years ago used to participate in fairly regularly, not so much, well, actually not at all in the past few years because I just haven't had time, is the KVR Audio Forums One Synth competition. And I think um, regular listeners will have heard me talk about this uh, probably a few years ago now. I think the last time I mentioned this one was, but every month uh, the KVR Audio Forum which ironically is a forum primarily about audio tools. Uh, every month um, they run this competition called the One Synth Competition. I think it's One, Th- One Synth Challenge or something like that. And they will take a freeware synth, a freeware synth plugin, uh, and you basically have to produce an entire song using only that plugin and no other third party tools. So you are allowed to use the tools in your DAW. You're not allowed to use any effects that uh, uh, result in you know, heavy modulation or heavy sound mangling. You're only essentially allowed to use uh, the plugin itself, any effects that are in the plugin, and then EQ and compression uh, from your DAW. And that's all you're allowed to use. Hmm. And it's such a fun, such a fun uh, challenge. For so many reasons, like firstly, you know, let's say it's like a, a freeware uh, subtractive synthesizer, something very simple, right? So, you know, if you want to make percussion, then you've got to do that in this synth. So you'll end up at the end of your project, you'll have like, you know, 40 instances of the same plugin. And there'll be like, one of them will be like a bass drum. One of them will be programmed to sound like a hi-hat. One of them will be programmed to sound like a snare drum. It's just beneficial for the things that we do in game audio on all levels because A, it's fantastic practice in learning about synthesis and learning about how to create, you know, certain kinds of sounds using a very limited tool set. How do you create a snare drum sound with a subtractive synthesizer? Like, how do you do that? Like, a simple thing like that is, is a great example of, of the kind of educational benefit. Um, Second thing is it really, really helps you learn your tools, as in your DAW, thoroughly because you you can't rely on workflow enhancements from anything else. You're restricted to only using one plugin and and EQ and compression. So the third benefit then, of course, is that as an exercise in music mixing, it's just amazing because you just can't rely on anything, (laughs) you know. You, you you can't even put reverb on there unless it's uh, um I think you're part allowed to use plugin. yeah unless it's part of the plugin I think though now they may have changed it so that you you are allowed to use some freeware um, effects as well like freeware reverb but it it should never be something that mangles the the source synth sound so much that it's unrecognizable so it can only be something very subtle so anyway the you know the the benefits to um, uh, sound design and mixing and working with a limited set of tools uh, and, you know, basically achieving a musical objective despite all of these limitations. It's just fantastic. And there are, you know, it happens every month. And at the end, all of the people, if you participate, you you are given the privilege of being able to vote on the winners. Uh, and um, it's a really friendly community of like-minded music people who are always, you know, supporting each other and you know, you'll get lots of comments and feedback about your song, and then of course you'll be voted, uh, and you'll you'll place in a in a ranking, and there may be some prizes for you if you get, uh, I think, first to fourth place get get prizes, and prizes are usually just plugins. Um, but yeah, that's one competition that I can highly highly recommend, which is just really good for you know honing your skills as a as a composer and a music producer and and sound designer too specifically. So. Useful across the board, really. Um, you have mentioned this one in the past, and I believe you may have even treated us to some of the writing. I forget if you did this on the show or maybe just in the, in the chat that we have, but I believe you've played some of your, your entries into that particular competition. Yeah, I think I did. Uh, you might be right. Yeah, that was a long... The last one I did was, was many, many years ago. Um, speaking of recent... Well, this one happens every month, but uh, another one that's coming up, which, well, no, sorry, is active right now, is on the asoundeffect.com website, which, of course, uh, the uh, sound designer 
colleagues out there listening who will be very well familiar with as a um, a fantastic online store for uh, for our sound design library content. Um, they're running a competition right now uh, called what is it called? Its official title is "Huge New Sound Design Contest!" Exclamation <laughs> mark. Yes, it's running right now. And the rules are: you must create your own sound design for um, for a video that they supply. Uh, the end date is the twenty first of May. So, uh, as of the recording of this episode, that's about twenty days from now. Um, you must use original, synthesized, or recorded sounds. You're not allowed to use any library sounds, um, <laughs> which is a again. Fantastic limitation from this website that sells sound design libraries. Um, and yeah, you're welcome to process the sounds in any way you like. And there's only one entry per person. Uh, and there are sound design libraries to win up for grabs. So if you are a sound designer, these kinds of contests are, are fantastic. You know, they're, they're educational. They're just a bit of fun. Uh, you can win a prize. But also, they're just wonderful uh, sort of practice and just sort of a reason to to be uh, practicing, you know, our craft. Now, this one seems slightly contrary to the spirit of the KVR competition, because the KVR competition leveled the playing field by uh, stipulating that everyone's using the same tool set. Here, because you're using original sounds, it seems like there may be a uh, advantage given to senior sound designers or, or more experienced sound designers who have their own libraries. I assume they're, they, people are allowed to draw from their own private libraries, right? Right. Yeah, I would assume so. So anyone who's been in the business a little longer and has got their arsenal accumulated, um, they might have a leg up on beginners. So the the, the playing field is a little more um, more like the tilt EQ you described earlier. Um, that said, uh, it's a very creative challenge. I'm looking at the description now, and um, it's it's um, if if we imagine that the um, the winner might be judged for originality, then perhaps that offsets the advantage because even if you've got a, a fairly modest, limited tool set for sound design, um, creative application might win rather than having the perfect tank that you yourself recorded at a historical tank convention in Europe 20 years ago where you know every tread has been recorded five times etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> that's right yeah that's true actually um uh yeah i think you're right you they, you do need to be quite careful with competitions when you when you set them up uh just to make sure that the you know regardless of your experience or the tools that you have including you know your your own personal library of of sound effect recordings or you know the tools you have to record your own sounds um uh you have to be careful to make sure that the the leveling the playing field is level like that um there are a, lot, a bunch of uh, um music and film scoring uh, competitions that that uh, go on from time to time around the internet have you ever participated in anything like that Trying to think. Um, certainly not recently because I just don't have the time and don't have as much motivation as I, I would have uh, earlier in my uh, career. I don't. I don't think so. You know, I'm aware of some of the competitions, like the ones that Spitfire run. Mm. Um, I, I do sometimes enter competitions on the musical theater side of things, and that's because I think that. Um, when you add lyrics and storytelling, it's easier to differentiate yourself from the thousands or millions of competitors. But instrumental music, it's tougher to be original. So um, I don't think I was ever drawn towards any. Mm. Yeah, I've never participated in uh, uh, anything like that. Actually, I've other than doing trailer videos for games, I've never actually had the privilege of scoring a film or you know something that isn't just a you know, 90 second advertisement. Um, it's, it's something that, uh, that I'd like to try one day, but it's kind of scary, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, uh, it, it seems kind of intimidating. Like there's, it's a whole new area of, um, you know, I, I think in game audio, we're so used to thinking in a non-linear fashion about how, right. our, how our music is going to work. And of course, you know, when you're scoring a film, it's, it's 
the opposite of that. It's in, entirely linear. Um, and so, you know, how to best make the, uh, you know, take benefit from those limitations is, is uh, an area that I'd be really, really curious to try, but also a little bit scared by uh, getting into. Because um, I know you've, you've uh, uh, had a lot of experience in scoring for film, haven't you? Yeah. And the, one of the big differences is that the relationship of music and visuals is very specific in film and, and TV as well. And uh, often in the creative process, that relationship is micromanaged. Uh, a slight change of timing can make a huge difference. Uh, whereas in game music, unless you're scoring a cutscene or something else that's predetermined, you're going for the vibe. You're going for a probabilistic relationship between music and gameplay. And uh, you're, I, I would also argue that the, the model of user attention is very different. Um, this is, of course, spilling into a huge topic. but corralling myself back into addressing the, the topic of competitions. Um, what I would say for the, the people out there in our listening audience, uh, there are two possible benefits to a competition. One is that slim chance of winning and getting whatever, uh, whatever plug-in or, or service they're offering as a prize, and perhaps uh, a modicum of, of fame. Uh, but I think the real value is the gamification of practicing your craft. Um, it's it's harder to just sit yourself down and say, I'm going to give myself three minutes to write a piece of music, three minutes, what am I thinking, uh, like half an hour or whatever, to write a piece of music and I'm only going to use this plug-in. Um, there, it's harder to motivate yourself to do it because it might feel like an exercise or maybe something you maybe you'll give to a sound library. Uh, and this is one way to add a set of rules and goal and structure and deadline to that process. So if if you feel like the participation and that slim chance of winning gives you some motivation, it just might help pull you along through a process that's uh, just everything you said, Alex. Um, it's it's getting to learn your craft better and to learn your tools better and, and stuff that's harder to motivate, uh, absent some kind of goal structure like that. Yeah, and of of course, um, uh, I know uh, our um, our beloved friend and colleague Chase. Is listening to this, punching the air, saying, "Come on, guys, mention mention game jams, game jams." <laughs> so, <laughs> for just just for you, Chase, we have to put in a mention here for game jams, which of course are precisely what you described. They are a reason to uh, to experience, to practice, and to to contribute. Uh, and of course, the game jams worth obviously. Um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have done or are doing game jams right now, but. Um, uh, the 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 benefit that you get from a game jam is is much more broad beyond just the, the craft of just you know having a reason to practice sound design or music composition or music implementation um, or or voiceover work or whatever uh, you know the, there's so many other benefits on the business side um, and of course naturally on the uh, on the aspect of you know collaborating with others and cooperating with other people to uh, create something together in a, in a limited amount of time, you know, very, very uh, beneficial across the board like that. Speaking of what's good for business, another, <laughs> another elegant, elegant, uh, uh, seamless, seamless, transparent segue here into one uh, other topic that you suggested that we chat about um, prior to the show starting, which I think is actually really interesting because I don't think we've ever talked about it, but it is very, very uh, interesting and relevant, and I'm quite curious to hear your views on it. That is CRM software. So client, is it customer relationship management? Management, I believe so. Yeah, or maybe yeah. client or contact. One, one yeah. of those C words. Yeah. So this is this is an area that I think um, uh, I don't think we've ever really talked about it, but it's it's a cool thing to discuss because let's face it, you know, I think the those of us uh, who are freelancers. In, in the field of uh, game audio, yeah, basically you're running a business and that involves client relationship management and managing you know, your clients and your, your leads for projects and uh, things like that. So you, know, you could just do it the old fashioned way with a spreadsheet um, or you could actually look into one of the tools that are specifically designed to uh, make client relationship management you know, convenient reliable uh, and thorough as well. So um, 
if you could, Mike, what's your experience with CRM software and, and you know, do you have any recommendations for good products and, and does a freelance listener like who's perhaps early on in their career, do they really even need something like this or is just like a, uh, a spreadsheet or a text document or, or you know, a to-do list? Is that adequate or like, tell us all. Sure. Uh, well, I'm not an expert. I just know the way I've done things. So I'll, I'll share that and hopefully that will be useful to those out there or perhaps it might inspire people to look for different solutions um, using different tools. I would say, or here's an analogy for you. Um, using a spreadsheet to keep track of contacts is like using the stock EQ and compressor in your DAW. Um, <laughs> it can do most of everything you want, but it may not be the most convenient way to do it. Um, it may offer too little structure and it may be too much work to do things that are, that, that are, that should be easy. Um, so things you wanted that you do all the time should be easy. Um, mm. otherwise you tend not to do them. So for example, um, show me all my contacts in the game industry who are, uh, decision makers who I have not sent an email to in the last six months. Mm. That's, that's a useful thing to want to know. Now you can go down every single contact and just compile a list yourself, but that's a lot of work. So it's nice to be able to organize your list of contacts and to categorize them uh, and to prioritize them so that if you are trying to uh, keep creative relationships or potential creative relationships active, it's, it's useful to be able to tell at a glance who you've been in touch with. Uh, without mm. having to, on a person-by-person -person basis, get in touch. Uh, the tool I use is called Daylight, with a mm. strange spelling, D-A-Y-L-I-T-E. Um, if, if you look it up, Alex, you'll, you'll hiss in disappointment, as you often do when you discover something is only for the Mac. Um, hey, I have a Mac, too. I have, I have a Mac as well, so that's okay. It's, it's okay, fine great. by me. The, the the funny funky spelling of daylight that's not fine by me <laughs> yeah these kind of software as a service kinds of things you know you, it's mandatory that you have something misspelt and then let me guess that the the actions that you actually do inside the software they're given like strange verbs like you don't you don't contact somebody you daylight them or you you, <laughs> you sunbeam them or something like that right I'm sure that does happen, but in this case, um, no. I think the spelling okay. <laughs> is probably just kind of a, a, a search engine trick because, you know, if they use the literal spelling of daylight, you would probably not find them uh, in Google. But if right. you use an idiosyncratic spelling, it's easy to find them. Uh, mm. These things are – so daylight is basically just a specialized database. Uh, I believe earlier versions were sitting on top of like a, a shareware database system. Uh, or maybe there's SQL down under there, but it gives you a, a specific interface to the broader idea of a database. So they give you concepts like a contact uh, or a company, and th those will all have a number of different attributes. Um, they can have categories, which are mutually exclusive containers. So a contact can be category A or B or C, but not A and B and not B and C. So you use categories for things where it's just one container versus another. Mm. Uh, they also give you keywords, which uh, do not have that limitation. So you can have as many keywords as you want, and it's incredibly flexible. You could use keywords for anything. Uh, I use keywords, for example, for industry. Is somebody in the film or TV industry? Are they in the gaming industry? Or are they in the music industry? Or are they in multiple of these things? You can add as many keywords as you want. So it's very easy to, they're basically tags, I think. Mm, uh, I Daylight is old enough that I think the term tag was not yet trendy. Uh, so they have a slightly older terminology, but it's, it's the same thing. Mm. Um, there are lots of these ways, these prefab structures for organizing people. There are smart lists, which are kind of like smart lists in the finder or in your operating system where you just set some criteria and the list is automatically populated by everyone who meets those criteria. Um, basically, it's a visualization of a database search, uh, but it's presented to you as a directory. Uh, what else do they have? They have groups, which are useful. Um, I find they're useful for keeping track of people involved in projects, uh, but you could use them for anything. You could say, this group is my mailing list, or this group are... Um, game developers who I like, but they have temper problems. You know, you can, you can use these structures any way 
to reflect how you think of your contacts and how you organize them and uh, to visualize the the many people you may know or the many companies you may know. Right. So uh, now what I like about Daylight is it's native, meaning it is a Mac application. So it is speedy. It is snappy. Um, the interface responds well. It's not like a web app where you always feel like there's a layer of sludge between you and the actual program. And right. the, you know your, your interface is burdened by whatever um, widgets your browser layers on top of the web browsing experience. Uh, web apps kind of drive me crazy. So what I really like about Daylight is it is uh, just crisp and responsive and psychologically makes me feel like I've... Uh, uh, I've I've got control over my rather large list of contacts at this point. Mm. Would you say that somebody, um, uh, you know, in, in the early stages of their career as a freelance um, sound designer or composer or uh, somebody in game audio, would you say that a tool like this is kind of overkill for the early stages of a career, or would or would you say that this is the kind of tool that it's great to just sort of I mean, it's it's clearly built for massive scale. So, is this the kind of thing that you can immediately benefit from, even if you know you've been doing this for a year and you've got yeah, you know, like six or seven people that you right. that you know that you know, is it something that it can be beneficial, you know, even from a small scale like that? No, I think if you're starting out, um, use a simpler tool, preferably a free one. Um, you can use. You could use Google Sheets if you can stand using a web app. Uh, or if you've got a Mac, you've got your contact app, I think it's called. It's either contacts mm. or address book. Uh, but that's a perfectly functional baby CRM, in effect. Um, yeah, if you, if you can wrap your head around your entire contacts list, if you kind of know everybody, you don't need a big tool like this. Mm. Uh, where it's useful is if you've accumulated enough contacts that you don't immediately remember everyone. And that's when it's useful to have a database-like thing so that you can have a list of everyone who you know in a given industry who you haven't written an email to in six months or something like that. Right. Um, that's where I find Daylight to be really, really helpful. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I would not survive if I were just using a spreadsheet. I would be, I would be drowning in data. So um, for, for a... Um, kind of mid-career and up com uh, composer, a sophisticated tool like Daylight, doesn't have to be Daylight, but um, something on that order of magnitude, I think is essential just for being able to be systematic in self-marketing, um, maintaining good relationships with your creative collaborators and just um, like, you know, it's, it, you've, you have a sudden need of a bass player, right? Can you, can you remember to call Alex and say, hey, Alex, I need some, some, cool bass. Um, can, do you remember every bass player that you know that you've met uh, over the last 20 years? You might just want a quick, and, you know, a quick list, and that could be very helpful. So um, these tools can be useful beyond keeping track of people you hope will hire you. Uh, they can be very useful for keeping track of other resources as well. I assume that it's possible to attach, like, you know, for example, the PDF contracts or at least a record of you know how much you charged or things like that to um to contacts as well because that sound that would be something that'd be very useful you know if you wanted to um just have a quick reference immediately at a glance or oh, how how much did i you know what's my mates rates for for this particular client you know how much did i charge them last time or you know as a reference when you're um discussing new projects that would be really really useful to be able to quickly see all of the information together there about the client, including your, you know, project history and and you know financial history. Is that something as well that's uh, that daylight can accommodate? Yeah, very thoroughly. Um, there are, there are a number of ways you can do something like that. Every contact, first of all, just on the surface of the contact has uh, a large number of different informational fields, including an open ended, um, I think it's called comments or synopsis or something. So you could even jot down this recording studio charges 120 an hour plus engineer, you know, little things that you might need to know at a glance. Mm. Uh, you can also attach arbitrary files, uh, including your hypothetical PDF. I believe it can either import the file into the database or it can just maintain an external link. Um, I don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that they allow you to do either. So mm. if you, um, have a humongous video file 
on your hard drive and you want to have a link to it, that's there, but you don't have to make a copy of it inside your burgeoning SQL database. Uh, you can also attach arbitrary text notes, um, and you can, if you're using the Mac's uh, email client, you can actually vacuum in emails that are associated with that particular person. And uh, it gives you a extra plugin for the mail app so that when you highlight an email written by somebody that Daylight knows about, you have the option of vacuuming that into Daylight. So you can have a specialized correspondence history uh, available instantly when you look at the contact. Wow. Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds very useful. And I think even if even almost, you know, if you're just starting off, uh, and obviously, you know, if you're dedicated to making a career out of this, even if you do have, you know, a, a quantity of clients and projects that you could easily remember, it sounds like it's almost worthwhile, you know, starting off right from the beginning using a tool like this, because if it does come to the point, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, where you like, well, who who was that project for again? Or like, how much did I charge them way back when I was starting? Or who were my first clients or things like that? It sounds like it'd be really, really useful to be able to have that all indexed in, in one place right from the beginning. So yeah, maybe um, uh, anyone who's interested maybe could check it out to see. it. To me, it sounds like something that would actually be very useful, yeah, right from the beginning as well. It is handy. Uh, another thing I like about is um, it has a data object for projects and opportunities. So oh, okay. you can use it to track gigs you're pursuing, and you can also use it as a data repository for gigs that you uh, already got or that you're doing. And mm. you can also link each gig to, well, speaking in the most generic terms, you can link a project to contacts. So you can have a project, a gig, and then make a link to everyone in your database who's working on that. And that can be handy if you're working with a, a big company and you just want to remember who's the you know, there was the creative producer, who's the art director, et cetera, et cetera. You, you literally can link all those contacts to the project and get that, get kind of a mini ad hoc directory. Um, wow. And it's useful cool. historically because 10 years later, you might be like, who is the producer on that project again? You can just click on the project and see all the people you linked to the project and recall everyone you worked with. So mm. that way you could be like, maybe you're, maybe that person is now producer on a new game and you, you want to get in touch with them, you can say, where, where did I know them from again? Oh yeah, we collaborated on Mushroom Invaders back in 2025. Remember me? You know, like you've got all that uh, <laughs> historical uh, data at your fingertips, so it's really handy. What's your general advice for the frequency with which to contact people that you've worked with before? Because I imagine that um, some people out there, you know, regardless of, of the, the phase you're at in your career, one thing that people would be concerned about is that obviously you understand from a practical point of view, you want to make sure that you are, you know, relevant and that you are uh, basically in the right place at the right time. You have to be in places very frequently to, to capture that, uh, you know, those moments when just when you know, a uh, former client uh, may be looking for a sound designer or a composer, suddenly your email arrives or, you know, suddenly they get a contact from you and it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, maybe I should chase them up about this project. Um, on the other hand, though, you know, you don't want to be, you know, that guy. <laughs> it's like <laughs> constantly spamming contacts with, with uh, hey, check out my latest stuff. If you need music, let me know. Right. Uh, you don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be too aggressive with it because that obviously also, uh, basically you become like spam and then just people stop paying any attention to you. Um, I know that actually, uh, I, uh, I do receive, um, contacts from game audio people. Uh, and you know, I really, uh, basically people who are just cold calling or cold emailing our company asking whether we have need for game audio. Um, and, you know, I, for me, I'm always, you know, I love getting messages like that and I love listening to portfolios and, um, and I'm always, I always try to, to send a personalized reply because, you know, I'm, I'm also uh, part of the game audio community too. So um, I like to make sure that our uh, colleagues feel 
supported and encouraged to do this. But yeah, do you have any general advice on how frequently people should be thinking to uh, contact and, and, you know, touch base with new or former clients? I don't have a formula when I'm putting on my freelance hat. Um, I try to be organic to the nature of the relationship, and I try to be sincere. Those are my two um, principles. Mm. So uh, sincerity means I don't try to act pretentious and disinterested and more corporate than I actually am. Uh, mm. I'm a freelancer. I'm an individual. That's honestly part of how I market myself. I'm not a Hans-Zimmerian conglomerate. Um, <laughs> I, and I, I wouldn't be able to compete or I would be ill-advised to compete with a large uh, industrial force, right? So I, I, right. I look for my niche. Uh, so I'm always sincere and try to represent myself. Uh, and the flips and the second principle, the prior principle, uh, organic to the relationship. If it's somebody I've known for years and I've become friends with, um, I might write something that's more uh, social in nature. It might be more informal and it might just be, hey, um, I, I, I did this thing on a project, thought you'd find it cool, hope all is well. You know, that will mm. come across as appropriate and it won't feel too chummy if the person is essentially a friend as well as a client. Right. If it's, if it's somebody I haven't worked with yet and I'm trying to establish a new creation, a creative connection, I'll be a little more formal, um, not to the point of being stiff, but uh, I'll respect their time because mm. I haven't earned their confidence. Um, and I will try to write often enough that they don't forget who I am, but not so often that I become a, a pest. And right. it just it it varies it varies wildly from category of person. So I, I don't have a magic number. Do you uh, recommend cold emailing? Just basically going out there and pulling together as many email addresses as you can and just firing off emails to introduce yourself and to, you know with the hope that you might get a a certain percentage hit rate of people who click through to listen to your portfolio? I think it's generally accepted wisdom that in almost any industry, cold calls have a very low return on investment. Mm. And meaning that if you're a massive corporation and you have the resources to write an email to everyone on this hopefully targeted advertising list, then that 1% uh, or that 0.1% might be worthwhile. But as composers, we're generally individuals. Uh, we are trying to represent ourselves as partially as artists. So, uh, and the, the nature of creative collaboration in our field does not lend itself to a generic service model. So, mm. uh, I think you know we're not selling vacuum cleaners door to door. So, um, yeah, I don't. I almost never cold call. I think historically there may occasionally have been a case where I saw a game company that was doing something that I felt was right up my alley. And I really liked, um, maybe they did something at GDC and I, and I thought what they did was great. Um, I guess it's not really a, if by cold call, you mean reaching out to someone with whom you have no relationship. Occasionally I'll do that. If I feel like there ought to be a relationship because of the, the, the specificity of what I do and what their needs are. Um, but I would never kind of blanket message people, um, that that would make me feel gross, and I'm sure mm. they would delete the email after two sentences. <laughs> yeah, this is a it's a tough challenge for anybody, really. the The whole uh, field or the whole you know uh, activity of of networking and and you know maybe now as um, uh, you know the last few years have been especially difficult with uh, the pandemic, obviously, and now things are gradually opening up and we're starting to see more game developer events um, uh, back on schedule and uh, um, running again. So uh, there's that, of course, and um, uh, the aforementioned game jams uh, are also, as Chase has mentioned many, many times in in different venues, game jams are also a great way to meet other developers, obviously, because you work with them. And then um, word of mouth you know, if you if you do enough of those, then uh, it, you know it's it's all too easy for somebody that you had a good experience with you on a game jam, who's working for now for a game company that now has a specific need for a sound designer or a composer or whatever, suddenly remembers you. Oh, yeah, there was that guy that I worked with on the, you know, that person was was great. 
that we we had on that game jam project and let's try and get them in here to to help us out with this new project or something like that so it's all a big uh business development challenge really and i think uh there's, it's not that different, really, whether you're in game audio or if you're a freelancer in, in any other kind of creative field. So, um, yeah. No, uh, CRM software, good. <laughs> That's the <laughs> yeah, cap that off. Scale the tool to what your needs are. If you're starting out, go with a simple tool. And as your needs become richer and more complex, consider upgrading to something that can be a little more sophisticated and help you search through your data in a way that you might not be able to easily do with simply glancing at, at rows of a spreadsheet. Right. And so that uh, brings us to uh, the end. Well, a little bit before the end, because to properly end, of course, we need to uh, indulge in a little bit of uh, conspicuous consumption, mm. meaning uh, uh, if there's been anything that you've uh, played or listened to or watched or read uh, or experienced, uh, Mike, in in media or entertainment, uh, let's let's share it. Uh, has there been anything that you've been uh, listening to or watching or playing recently that you could recommend? So much. I'm going to have to spread this over a couple of episodes, but um, for now, I'll say that I have joined the Elden Ring craze uh -oh. and find it very addictive, uh, very compelling. Mm. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It is not as brutal and sadistic as some of the other games by from software, but it um, re retains the flavor of those games, the Dark, Dark Souls and Bloodborne and those other games. Um, right. It's it's much more um, Skyrim-y, much more Breath of the Wildy, <laughs> I guess, and being right. kind of this, this huge world, and it's a lot of fun to explore, and uh, I, I recommend it for anyone who likes that genre of game, even if they... Uh, have been turned off by the difficulty of prior offerings from this company. Um, nice. we could talk about, I think in a future episode, we should talk a little bit about the music in that game because it's interesting in some ways and it's great in some ways. And in other cases, I feel like they've missed some opportunities. So let's bookmark that discussion for a future episode. Yeah, actually, that's uh, uh, probably a good one we can, we can tackle next episode because, uh, yeah, the Elden Ring is obviously the, 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 the new hotness <laughs> right now <laughs> yeah i'm not actually um not actually playing i'm not actually playing anything right now it's i'm it's a little bit sad you know i, I uh, i'm kind of looking for something new to play but not really um the last game that i played was was chorus which is a space combat simulator which i mentioned before mm -hmm. um and uh kind of in a bit of a a lull at the moment as far as games are concerned which is doesn't feel right so i need to need to address that situation um I've been listening to um, the new, well, uh, it's going to be an album upcoming, but at the moment uh, the artist is just releasing singles uh, from the album on a, on a frequency of basically one every, uh, I guess, three or four weeks. The artist is a, a Swedish group called, are you ready? They're called I Am Am I Who Am I? Really? So all in lowercase with no spaces. I am, am I, who am I? And that's and the name of the group, not the album. That's the name of the group. And uh, this is the one of the creative projects of an incredible, incredible Swedish singer called uh, Jona Lee. It's actually Jona, as in Swedish J-O-N-N-A, uh, Lee. Um, but she spells it I-O-N-N-A so that people pronounce it correctly as Yona and not Jonna, uh, but, um, or Jonah, but, um, or Jono, if, if you're from Australia, <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, she's absolutely incredible, like astoundingly great. Uh, and, um, was actually, uh, recommended to me a long time ago by uh, a fellow game audio uh, colleague on Twitter, uh, and just absolutely incredible. She has a very distinctive way of singing, very distinctive choreography that she does for herself, uh, very distinctive pronunciation, um, and uh, she's done solo stuff before, and um, I Am Am I Who Am I is a collaborative work between herself and one of her longtime uh, collaborator music producers. And I would describe it as um, 
wow, it's electronic, but it's, uh, oh man, it's so hard. Well, I guess you call it air quotes, electronica, vocal electronica, I suppose. It's just, it's really hard to, to describe uh, as with a lot of, um, you know, uh, musical work on a, on the more progressive side of the spectrum. Um, it's fantastic. It's very, very um, ethereal, serene, ambient, uh, a little bit, a little bit funky. No, 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 not really funky, but it's got a groove to it. Uh, just excellent. It's hard to describe. So go to YouTube, type in I am, am I, who am I, and check out some, some videos. The videos are, are worth checking out as well. They're quite, um, quite, they are art pieces in themselves. So it's, it's a sort of an ecosystem of, uh, artistic entertainment for you to enjoy. So yes, the latest works from I am, am I, who am I, uh, that have been dribbling onto YouTube as what I've been conspicuously consuming. That sounds very intriguing. Yeah. Uh, this brings us to the end of episode 223 of the Game Audio Hour podcast. We would love it if you get in contact with us via our Twitter, which is at Game Audio Hour. Uh, that's also the place to go if you are looking for updates on our episodes. And that's also where we uh, drop links to um, all of the major platforms for uh, podcasts where you can uh, find, well, I guess you probably already know that if you're listening to this because you've already found us. <laughs> so, but anyway, yes, please follow us on Twitter at Game Audio Hour. And of course, if you have any feedback uh, with regard to what you'd like to hear, what you don't want to hear any more of, that is Alex talking about uh, compressor plugins um, <laughs> or other things, questions or anything that you'd like to hear on the show or recommendations for great sound in games or music or stuff for us to listen to, uh, please also, yeah, hit us up on Twitter, Game Audio Hour, and uh, yeah, we would love to get in touch. So thank you for listening as always, and we will see you next episode. Till next time.